Welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. My name is Judd Littleton, and I'm a partner in the litigation group and the co-head of the firm's Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. I'm here today with my partner, Julia Malkina. Today, we are kicking off the second edition of a series of podcasts that go along with SNC's Supreme Court Business Review, which we published just last week. The Supreme Court Business Review summarizes the decisions from each term that are most relevant to business leaders and offers practical guidance on the implications of those decisions. In this introductory episode, we will introduce our podcast series and preview the upcoming episode. We will conclude with a brief discussion of two of the most interesting and closely watched business-related decisions from this term. The court's June 23rd decision in Collins v. Yellen, in which the court considered, among other things, a constitutional challenge to the statutory limits on the president's ability to remove the director of the Federal Housing Finance Authority, and the court's June 17th decision in California v. Texas, in which the court considered another legal challenge to the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. Throughout this episode and subsequent episodes, we will discuss the practical consequences of the decisions covered in this term Supreme Court Business Review and offer guidance for businesses and practitioners on these changes in the law. So, Julia, for those listeners who may be unfamiliar, how about we start by talking about what the Supreme Court Business Review is? Of course, Judd. For the past seven years, SNC has published a review of the most business-relevant cases at the conclusion of each Supreme Court term. We aim to make the Supreme Court Business Review accessible to practitioners and non-lawyers alike. The review provides concise, one-page summaries of the key cases in plain English and offers practical guidance on how they will affect businesses. As many of our listeners know, the legal landscape for businesses is constantly changing. And so our goal is to make the Supreme Court Business Review a helpful way for busy corporate executives, in-house counsel, and other legal practitioners to stay on top of important developments that come from the court. The review draws on the firm's premier Supreme Court and appellate practice which in turn draws on the experience of 13 former Supreme Court clerks and more than 75 former Federal Circuit Court clerks. Now, Julia and I get a lot of help from a lot of different folks at SNC on this publication, but we serve as the editors. And it's fun for us to do this together. Julia and I clerked the same term on the Supreme Court. I clerked for Chief Justice Roberts, and Julia clerked for Justices O'Connor and Breyer. We also both worked at the Solicitor General's office at the Department of Justice, which represents the United States in the Supreme Court. Before that, I clerked for Justice Kavanaugh when he was a judge on the DC Circuit. So you can find this term's edition of the Supreme Court Business Review, as well as all six prior editions, under the Publications section of SNC's website, www.silcrom.com. Now let's talk a little about our more recently launched podcast series which debuted last year. We're excited to bring it to you again this year. Judd, do you want to talk about why we decided to record these podcasts? Of course. We thought that these podcasts would be a fun way to dig deeper into the key decisions and key issues discussed in the Supreme Court Business Review. We work very hard in the review to distill the takeaways of each decision to a one-page summary, which is very difficult to do. But in the podcasts, we can get into more of the nuances of the decisions and expand on their potential impact on businesses and practitioners. 
And it also allows us to invite other SNC partners with tremendous experience in these subject matter areas of these cases to share their insights. And of course, just like the Supreme Court Business Review itself, we want these podcasts to be helpful and enjoyable to both lawyers and non-lawyers alike. So how will the series work? So each week, give or take, we will release a new episode focused on a different practice area. And we'll invite other SNC partners who practice in that area to discuss last term's decisions that were relevant in their space. Can we give a preview of the upcoming episodes? Of course, we will have an interesting episode focused on a couple of important decisions in the products liability and class action space, covering Ford Motor Company versus Montana 8th Judicial District and TransUnion versus Ramirez. We also will have an episode on tech, which will discuss the decisions in Van Buren versus United States and Facebook versus Dugoid. Also on deck is an episode on the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act with a focus on the decision in Federal Republic of Germany versus Philip. We also have an episode with SNC's antitrust group, which will discuss the Supreme Court's decisions in NCAA versus Alston and National Association of Broadcasters versus Prometheus Radio Project. So as you can see, we have a lot of really interesting content coming up in these later episodes, but for this introductory episode, Julia and I thought we would take it upon ourselves to cover a couple of the important decisions from this term. On June 23rd, the Supreme Court issued its much-awaited decision in Collins versus Yellen, a case involving a challenge by shareholders of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to certain agreements between the U.S. Treasury Department and the FHFA, which Congress created in 2008, and which soon thereafter placed Fannie and Freddie under conservatorship pursuant to its new statutory authority. The agreement and its history get pretty technical, but Essentially, after the housing bubble burst in 2008, leading to the financial crisis and the Great Recession, the FHFA took Fannie and Freddie into conservatorship and entered into financing agreements with the Treasury that, in the shareholders' words, transferred the net worth of Fannie and Freddie to the federal government and away from the shareholders. So the shareholders sued to undo that agreement. And after the case made its way to the Supreme Court, it presented two basic questions. First, whether the agreement was consistent with FHFA's statutory responsibilities after placing Fannie and Freddie into conservatorship. And second, whether the acting director of the FHFA could constitutionally enter into that agreement in light of the statutory limitations on the president's ability to remove the director of the FHFA, which the shareholders argued was unconstitutional. The court held 9-0 that the FHFA's actions were within the permissible scope of the agency's authority in its role as conservator because the Housing and Economic Recovery Act of 2008 authorized the FHFA to act in the public interest, not solely in Fannie's and Freddie's best interests, as would be the case in a standard conservatorship. Because the FHFA acted within its authority, the shareholder's statutory claims were barred by that same statute. Now turning to the constitutional challenge, the court held 7-2 that the four-cause limitation on the president's removal authority violates the separation of powers by unconstitutionally isolating the FHFA director from presidential oversight. So to give a bit more background, as Julia mentioned, the Housing and Economic Recovery Act of 2008 created the FHFA 
and it gave the agency a single director who serves for a five-year term and can only be removed by the president for cause. In effect, the removal provision prevented the president from dismissing the FHFA director at will for whatever reason the president deemed appropriate. The court agreed with the shareholders that due to this limitation, the agency was unconstitutionally structured. Court held that its decision last term in Selah Law versus CFPB, which struck down a similar restriction on the removal of the director of the CFPB, was all but dispositive of the constitutional challenge here. That's right. Just like in Selah Law, the court here relied on the principle that Article 2 of the Constitution vests the full executive power in the president and generally requires that the president maintain unrestricted removal power over lesser executive officers who exercise significant executive authority so that the president can ultimately be held accountable for those officials' actions. Now, given the similarity of the two statutes and the two agencies, I think most people expected the court to reach the same answer on the constitutional question here. But the court said some interesting things in reaching that conclusion. It acknowledged arguments that the FHFA's authority over ordinary citizens might be more limited as compared with the CFPB. But the court stated that, quote, the nature and breadth of an agency's authority is not dispositive, end quote, of whether the president must be able to fire the head of that agency for any reason or no reason at all. As the court summarized, quote, the constitutionality of removal restrictions end quote, does not hinge on a court's ability to weigh the relative importance of the regulatory and enforcement authority of the disparate agencies. But the shareholder's remedy for that constitutional violation remains unclear. The court declined to unbind the challenged agreement because the director who adopted it was an acting director who was removable at will. And the court held that actions taken by a properly appointed agency official cannot automatically be treated as void. Instead, on remand to the lower courts, the shareholders will have to show that the restriction on removal somehow harmed them. And Justice Thomas's concurrence openly wondered whether these shareholders or future parties suing to challenge unconstitutional removal restrictions would ever be able to establish that any of the agency's actions were invalid or could be undone on that basis alone. Finally, thanks to a bit of late-breaking news, we can mention some very real implications of this decision. Over the weekend, news outlets reported that President Biden fired the commissioner of the Social Security Administration, Andrew Saul, on Friday. The commissioner is appointed for a six-year term, and the statute provides that he can only be terminated for cause. But according to news outlets, in the wake of Collins, the Justice Department advised that, based on Collins and Sayla Law, the SSA commissioner is in fact removable at will, and President Biden fired him after he refused a request to resign. Those news reports suggest that Mr. Saul has stated he intends to contest his dismissal, so it's possible that we will soon see another case completing a sort of trilogy here after the CFPB and the FHFA. So with that, let's turn to another of the most highly anticipated decisions from this term. On June 17th, the Supreme Court issued its much-awaited decision in California versus Texas, a case challenging the Affordable Care Act's minimum coverage provision, the provision that requires individuals to carry health insurance, which we will refer to, as most people do, as the mandate. This particular challenge was brought by more than a dozen states and two individuals 
who argued that the mandate, which the court had previously upheld as a valid exercise of Congress's taxing power, was no longer constitutional because Congress reduced the penalty for noncompliance to zero. The challengers also argued that the mandate was so central to the ACA that if it was struck down, the entire ACA should also fall. The court did not reach the constitutional question because it determined in a 7-2 decision authored by Justice Breyer that the challengers lack standing to challenge the law. So to understand the history of this challenge, here's a bit more background. The case was in many ways a sequel to the Supreme Court's first ACA decision, the 2012 ruling in National Federation of Independent Business versus Sebelius. And in that case, a narrow majority of justices upheld the mandate as a valid exercise of Congress's taxing power, relying in part on the fact that Congress imposed a tax penalty on individuals who did not purchase health insurance as required by the mandate. Five years after that decision, however, Congress changed the tax penalty for failing to comply with the mandate to zero dollars, meaning that there was no penalty at all for failing to carry insurance. That action by Congress led a group of states and two individuals to bring a new lawsuit challenging the mandate, this time arguing that it could no longer be justified as a tax because it no longer carried any tax penalty. As a result, they argued that the mandate was now unconstitutional and that it was such a critical part of the ACA framework that if the mandate was struck down, the entire ACA has to go as well. A federal district court in Texas agreed with the challengers on both counts. On appeal, the Fifth Circuit agreed that the mandate was unconstitutional, but sent the case back to the district court to look more closely at the question of whether the rest of the ACA could survive even if the mandate was struck down. In contrast to the closely divided decision in NFIB, this time a pretty broad majority of the court, seven justices, agreed that the challengers lacked standing to maintain this lawsuit challenging the ACA's insurance mandate. As a refresher, to establish standing, the challengers needed to show that they suffered an injury and that that injury is, quote, fairly traceable to the part of the law that they were challenging. Now, the two individuals who were plaintiffs here argued that they were injured because they were forced to pay for insurance each month, even though they did not want it. The court rejected this argument. It held that the individual's payments for health insurance were not fairly traceable to the ACA mandate because there was no consequence for failing to comply with that, quote, mandate, now that it no longer included a penalty provision. In other words, the court held that challengers to a federal statute have to demonstrate an injury threatened by the enforcement of a statute, not merely its existence, in order to demonstrate that they have standing to challenge it. Now, the state's standing argument was a bit different. The states argued that they were harmed by the increased use of state-operated medical insurance programs, which cost the state more money. They also argued that they were injured by increased administrative costs they incurred in order to comply with other ACA provisions. The court rejected the state's arguments too. First, the court held that the state had failed to demonstrate that the increased enrollment in insurance programs was caused by now unenforceable mandate, as opposed to the other benefits offered by those programs. And as to the administrative costs, the court explained that those costs resulted from separate ACA provisions that the states had not challenged. So in sum, because the court disposed of the case on standing grounds, it did not reach the question of whether the mandate is constitutional or whether it's severable from the rest of the ACA. 
And the court's decision makes clear that litigants challenging a federal statute should ensure that they explain how that statute can be enforced against them in order to demonstrate a sufficient stake in the matter to demonstrate standing. That's all we have for today. Thank you for listening to SNC's Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.silkrom.com. Please also join Judd, me, and our guests for upcoming episodes of our Supreme Court Business Review podcast series.